Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art and craft of motion imaging. For more information about the project and filmmakers discussed in this episode, as well as production images, visit the podcast section of our website at ASCMag.com. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at theasc.com. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. My name is Jim Hemphill. I'm a filmmaker and contributing writer at American Cinematographer Magazine, and I'm sitting in the ASC Clubhouse in Hollywood today with ASC member Lawrence Schur. He's here to talk about his work on one of the most widely discussed movies of 2019, Joker, a character study in the tradition of Taxi Driver and Straight Time in the guise of a comic book tentpole movie, Joker tells the story of Arthur Fleck, a mentally ill young man played by Joaquin Phoenix, who is transformed into the famous DC villain by a harsh upbringing and a hostile city completely lacking in empathy. The city is called Gotham, but in Schur and his collaborators' hands, it looks an awful lot like 1981 New York. While the movie has echoes of classic films like Serpico, Fort Apache the Bronx, and Network, it's not directly imitative of any of them. It finds its own cinematic language for alienation and loneliness, and I'm excited to have Larry here to talk about how he came up with that language. Well, before we get into Joker, I actually want to ask a little bit about your partnership with director Todd Phillips, because by my count, this is your sixth movie in about 10 years. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the approach you guys took on the first movie you did, The Hangover, and how it sort of set the tone for your relationship to follow, because, I mean, my memory of Hangover when I saw that in the theater was thinking, you know, you guys were doing some interesting things. It didn't look like other comedies at the time. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and a little bit about how you forged this relationship with Todd that has now led to so many uh, productive movies. Yeah, I mean, my relationship with Todd is as strong a collaboration as I've had in the film industry, and it's something I relish. Uh, First and foremost, he's an excellent filmmaker. I knew that even from old school. I remember watching that movie, and even though it was a comedy and it had some broad elements, and it was, I remember even from the opening shots of like, in the credit sequence when Luke Wilson is in this conference, like Todd put just a little bit of like a green hue to it, like an ugly fluorescent, and then the way he he approached even just the apartments and stuff like that, and, and you know, it was with Mark Irwin, I think, was the DP, and, uh, he just was okay. He was cool with it be- feeling real. It wasn't about he was trying to do sort of quote unquote the traditional comedy look of brighter is better and see everything and shadowless kind of environment. Which certainly there are plenty of examples of movies that don't do that. But there was always a sort of a sense that movies that comedies are first and foremost about the jokes and they're less about less about the cinema. We were always about the cinema. As far as we were concerned, we were making a movie first and foremost. We were making something that should feel cinematic and should service the story more than the jokes. And that the jokes, if set in a real environment, would play even better. And that was certainly something I ascribed to and, and Todd did for sure. So our thing was, let's make this movie feel as cinematic as possible. Let's always start from a place of real. and. All the movies that we appreciated and all the techniques that, that they were using, whether it was like a shooting long lens like Ridley Scott on an action movie, they could still apply even to a comedy. And 
And, uh, and with The Hangover, we were also trying to tell the story of kind of the glossless Vegas. Like what's behind the scenes in Vegas? What are the dirty lots? What does Vegas look like during the day? Uh, what does Vegas look like that's not your traditional glossed up Vegas? And so by its intention, it was like, let's make it a little dirtier, let's make it a little grittier, let's make it a little more real and, and drive everything off of that principle. And, um, and I think just because of some of those decisions, it maybe then started, people started saying, wow, it doesn't really feel like a comedy per se. And suddenly then it takes off and makes a huge amount of money and is a huge success. So then it gets even more, I think, recognition for some of the things it did differently than your traditional comedy. Well, and then one last thing I wanted to ask before we jump into Joker is between Hangover and Joker, something you did was directed your own movie. And I'm curious how that informed your work as a cinematographer. I mean, have you, has your approach as a director of photography changed at all or the way you are on set as a result of having directed yourself and seen it from the other side? I think mostly directing a movie and then going back and shooting movies, which I have since then, just gave me way more empathy for the directors I've worked for, particularly Todd. Um, you know, as a director, sometimes you feel like you're on an island. You have a ton of decisions to make every single day. You're constantly bombarded with these questions. And you feel like you have to have all these answers. And I think all you want is somebody else on that island. And certainly, I always felt like I could be that to the directors I've worked with. But even more so, having, having put myself in the shoes of the director, I now understand all the sort of downward pressure and all the other things that come into a decision. Um, and there are things that are happening behind the scenes. They may be things having to do with studio, with the writing, with a, an actor's mood that day, all these things that maybe you're not privy to. I now have absolute understanding of what those, how those things come in and make a decision on the day and may influence my photography and decisions or even the mood of the director. And I think I'm just much more aware of, of that and empathetic towards it in a way that I think has made me a better cameraman because, uh, because I, can, I can still have the same influence, I can still make the same suggestions, but I'm a little bit aware of, of all the other things. So I feel like I can come at it in a much more um, sympathetic way and still uh, and be as helpful as I can to making their job easier. Just like join them on that island. That's my number one thing is you got another person on that island with you. You're not alone. Um, and so that's always been my philosophy, but even now, even more so. So when did Todd first approach you about Joker and what did he tell you about it? Was there a script yet or how did you first hear about it? Um, what's funny about the, and I don't think I've told this story, but uh, I had the weirdest conversation with Todd, which is we'd done five movies together. I had directed, but I'd also, I was shooting Godzilla. So I'd gone back to shooting. I was in Atlanta shooting Godzilla. And my wife was like next to me when I had the phone. And Todd goes, oh my God, I got this script I wrote with, with and it's like, I'm so excited about it. And I want you to shoot it. But I just want to know, are, do you want to shoot it? Do you want to still shoot movies? And I'm like, yes. In fact, I'm shooting a movie right now. And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, I just want to make sure, because I just want to make sure you, you still want to shoot movies. And I'm like, yes. And it was like this conversation for like 10 minutes where I was like, do you want me to say no? <laughs> and it was like a very odd conversation in which I was like, oh, and I hung up. I went, I couldn't tell. Like, was he hoping I would say no? 
so we could use Greg Frazier? I like, I literally was to this day like going, it was weird, but yet I also know the relationship that Todd and I have, and I know that, um, you know, I, I even wasn't going to shoot War Dogs because I was preparing to direct a movie, and then that fell through, and it was almost a last minute decision by Todd to like reach out one last time and say, okay, it's like we're at that point. Any chance? And I jumped right on it because, of course, I love working with Todd and I still love shooting. But this time, I was just like, an, it was a very interesting conversation because I was truly sort of like, but like was wondering, like what, what there was like a, a, a sort of a, an oddity to the conversation. But nonetheless, uh, I knew he wanted me ultimately and I knew I wanted to do it because our collaboration is so, is so strong and I feel like we push each other in ways that perhaps if he worked with a, a cameraman for the first time or a woman for the first time, uh, there, would be, there would be an unknown factor there. Um, so, and I knew with this movie we could push each other even further and he wanted that. And so once I was like, yes, we're doing this, uh, I read the script, then our conversations were all about how do we make this the best thing we've ever done. Now, I feel like every time we set out to make a movie, we try to make sure it's the best thing we've ever done and we try to take risks and, and do all kinds of new things that, you know, because we're just trying to, con, you know, become better craftspeople. Um, and this one was, was certainly like, let's do the most uncompromised thing that we, we've done to date. Yeah, well, it's a really, you know, it's, uh, although it's a comic book movie based on a pre-existing character, it's really a one-of-a-kind movie. And I'm curious what your response was the first time you read the script. How did it, how did it hit you? What were the first things that came to your mind? Well, just how singular a character study it was and how exciting it's going to be to make a movie in which we, we are so, we're so focused on one person, you know, as opposed to servicing a lot of other entities. Um, so it was exciting to think about, okay, how do we do this period Gotham? Like, how do we build that world was really exciting. And think about the look and feel of the movie that could represent that. Um, how, can I, how can we sort of look for opportunities? Is this movie going to feel like what's... It, it, you start to do all the things you do on any prep, which is you work up the script and you just start dissecting it and taking notes and saying, like, is this handheld, long lens? What's, it, it's, a, it's, it's always a process that's ever-evolving, and even through the shoot, it's evolving. But I think uh, the, the first thing was just an excitement for the opportunity that was, that was here to do something really special. Uh, well, and I'm not sure if this is applicable or not, but I've heard talk of something that I think you're developing or have developed shot deck yeah is that so, is that something that you used on this i use it i've used it i created it because i needed to do it so shot deck is a website that i created which is um it's basically a, an image database of screen grabs because what i discovered and this goes all the way back to pitching movies like garden state which was earlier in my career and, and, and actually, I can thank David Mullen peripherally for it because David also interviewed for that movie. And I remember seeing he had created like a little pitch deck, like a little lookbook, and it had screen grabs. Um, and I always chose to do that as well. And I thought, so every movie I'd ever pitch for, one of the processes I'd go through is I would think about the movie and I would start to sort of create a little lookbook uh, from other movies because to some extent, I suppose, and I would take things from other art sources as well, photography and art, but often movies 
represented something that, that you know, was, was a common language between me and the director. And so I would find them as examples of lighting or color or composition, um, tone, and use that as an example for us to com communicate what the look of that movie is going to be. So from pitch to then prep, and then all the way through shooting, I would compile these folders of screen grabs that were appropriate inspirations for the movie I was doing. And over time, I just wish they were keyworded in like a multitude of ways so that suddenly I wasn't just going back to the same folders and picking out shots, but I could now search for a color or I could search for a location like a coffee shop or I could search for an emotional thing or, or whatever that is. I wanted to sort of create this. So I, I hired a programmer and we created this uh, website in which even when it had 5,000 images, Todd and I would use it to prep for war dogs. And we would sort of hope and wish outside of Google searches that this thing was even more scalable and bigger and had more images. And so now it's still a beta site and, and is used by a bunch of cinematographers and directors and students and creative directors at ad agencies as just a research tool and a way to, to sort of um, collaborate and talk about images to help create the vision for the movie you're working on. So I not only have used it on every movie since its, since its inception, I used it like crazy on, on Romeo, which was the Joker, the working title. But even I'm doing a music video this weekend, I use it. I use it every single project, absolutely. And uh, I'm sure there were a lot of them, but what were some of the images that you and Todd were looking at as reference points for this movie? What were some of the other films that... All kinds. I remember finding like an image, this really cool low angle ECU from Dr. Strangelove that I put into a folder for composition. You know, there were a lot of like close-up. There's a whole folder just for composition of close-ups. Um, and in that composition folder, two things came out. One was I knew the movie was going to be told in a lot of close-ups, so I was looking for in interesting close-up e examples because to some extent, even though I never looked at them again, they were a leaping off point for Todd and I to have a discussion of like, and this low angle shot from Strangelove was just super stark, really low of uh, the general or something like that. And I don't think I ever referenced it again, but it always stuck with me. And there's a shot in the movie when he's writing in his journal, and we push in on a wide lens uh, of him sort of alone sitting at a table writing in his journal. And then there's an over the shoulder, and there's another angle. And then there's just this really bonkers low angle shot um, that might have been inspired somewhat by that strange love shot or some of the compositional elements, um, the odd framing of a movie like Killing of a Sacred Deer, which I thought was gorgeous. and had a tension that was similar to the tension that I felt like uh, Joker would have. Um, and then sometimes we will talk about something as, you know, a lot of it is like your memory of what a look is. So like whether it's the 70s movies that were more of a memory and we'd put images in the folders from let's say Network or Taxi Driver, or, you know, Dog Day Afternoon, those kind of movies, and then see them you know, because one of the nice things about looking at stills is you can kind of see them all together as a pastiche and then see, does that feel like this movie? Is that going down the line? Is that a template we can use? Um, and, uh, and so, like, we'll have examples of, at some point, Todd might mention something like, I love the way the night of looked, the L. Swit pilot for that TV show. And so I literally got the Blu-ray, broke the movie down, 
put those screen grabs back into Shot Deck. And then when we looked at them, we went, ah, it's awesome, but it's not this movie. You know, and so if, if, even if Todd's memory was like, that feels like potentially the direction we could take this movie in terms of its like palette and its darkness, they often were examples of what it wasn't. So in a weird way, you take all these images, you sort of use them as inspiration, and then what comes out on the other end is something hopefully brand new and unique, but they've been influenced in a multitude of ways by a bunch of different things. Um, yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me because it does feel like a movie that's uh, almost a memory of the late 70s, early 80s movies. You know, I've, we've talked about this before that, to me, there are no shots in it that feel like they're taken from Taxi Driver or Fort Apache the Bronx or whatever, but it just has this kind of overall tone that you feel like it would play in a theater alongside one of those movies. That's, I think that's exactly where we were going for, was that, that it could feel like a movie that was made in that time, but it would also have all the techniques and interesting you know, things that Todd and I want to do and have done even on our other movies. I think somebody was uh, ringing up The Dark Knight for that shot of um, Joaquin at the end of the movie, his Joker is like in the back of the police car and he's looking out the window, sort of staring at the chaos that he's sort of created. And people then bring up that amazing shot of, of Heath Ledger driving the cop car in Dark Knight. That shot, Todd and I have talked about, frankly, for due date. If you go to due date, there's a shot in that movie in which Zach has stolen, like he's actually broken in and like helped Robert Downey escape. And he's like driving crazy on the highway. If anything, we reference that for his due date. We didn't actually reference this. That shot of him just pressed up against the window looking out we actually did in Hangover 3 on our own. So if anything, we were just stealing from ourselves. But it's interesting how we feel like we, we take imagery and we think of other movies because, of course, you know, in the history of hundreds of years of filmmaking, every shot's been probably done before. Um, uh, but yeah, I think we, we were certainly influenced by the character studies of those 70s movies. And, um, and I, I think, if anything, the biggest influence that had, because we ended up shooting the movie digitally, was trying desperately to make it feel as filmic and as chemical, as simple as it could be, was me really reverse engineering some of those images, whether it's Taxi Driver or Network or those, more for the, the sort of the tonality and inherent contrast and color quality that film had, particularly in that day. How it reacted to uncorrected fluorescence, how it reacted to streetlights, its contrast, its, um, its, its saturation. And so if anything, I was using them just as a anthropological way to study it, to make the film look as filmic as it could be, in spite of the fact that we shot digitally. So it was really to just go back to the characteristics of film and whether it's just the fact that there's never really any clean whites, the whites are usually contaminated with some sort of, the highlights are probably contaminated with a bit of cyan green, and the low lights are maybe contaminated with green yellow, um, that kind of thing. So if we were, even if we're trying to do like a scene at the end of the movie where he's in the white room, we're still trying to give it a little bit of contamination so it's not clean. It's not, and that, those, in those ways, we really referenced some of those movies. Well, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the testing process and the decision process that went into getting to the digital format you shot on, because I know you had talked initially about shooting on film and different formats, and yeah. maybe take me through what your initial conversations with Todd were like and what, 
again, what, what were the formats you considered? What did you test? I know it's a big question, but how did you end up where you got? No, because it was honestly, you talk about like, okay, what were your first conversations when you sort of got the script and all that? The first conversation was like, we both felt like the movie should be 185, and that was cool because we both sort of came at it separately, and so that was nice because we had only shot basically Super 35. We'd both individually obviously shot anamorphic, but they were always 240, and, and we both were like, this just feels 185. Um, and so that was good. And then the next question was like, ah, do you think we could shoot 65 millimeter film? We both were a big fan of the master. We thought because this movie is gonna be ultimately a story of, of extremes, right? Like big wide shots in which he was small, cut against very close, you know, extreme close-ups in which we wanted that kind of shallow depth of field that anamorphic provides, but not anamorphic. We didn't want that, that sort of feel of the movie um, and then we went down that path and we just couldn't afford it. You know, we couldn't, we had a little struggle getting the actual cameras. Kenneth Branagh had sort of taken those two cameras that we were going to take and we knew we needed two plus a backup. Um, Warner's, frankly, was a little reticent because of the budget of the movie and, and we were shooting in New York. Everything would have to go back to Photocam. And as much as the movie still has a budget that's like better than a lot of movies, those things mattered and they actually mattered enough that we were basically discouraged to shoot that. Then we went to 35. We were going 35 almost till the end of the prep. And we started, Todd, uh, it was really Todd's idea to, to say, what if we considered, can you show me a test? Because I kept talking about the attributes of Area 65 and the fact that it would give us the ability like we initially wanted, which was to shoot large format. So we'd still get the benefit of our initial instinct photographically but it would have to be digital. So Todd said, okay, well, what, let's go out on the streets. And we went to literally the same locations as we shot in the movie. Like that staircase was such a big part, a big character in the movie, that we went and we stuck a 35 millimeter camera and we stuck an Aerie 65, shot them side by each at dusk, guy walking up the stairs just like in the movie. We went down to Chinatown where later he walks with Sophie after a date. Uh, we went to a couple other places in New York no lighting, and just shot with both formats, and then really took them into the theater and projected them both side by each. And although film still beats digital in color rendition, it's still got it. Nobody's beaten it you know, yet. You could get damn close. And the attributes was we could do things like shoot at 1600 ASA, we could shoot with less light, we could have like, you know, obviously the focus and other technical issues we knew would really, would really benefit this movie because of some of the improvisational ways. And so thankfully Todd was, was willing to consider 65 on, the, on digital and then we, we were off to the races looking in that direction. Then the next step for me was just, okay, how do I make this as absolutely film-like as possible? And that came from like developing a very specific 5293 LUT with the help of my colors, Jill Bogdanovich and her father who used to work at Kodak and really trying to, again, reverse engineer the stocks, build a LUT that was as filmic as absolute possible. And I do remember when we shot the makeup test and the hair test, how just beautiful it looked. And, and, and Todd loved it and he even loved it on set. It just like had a richness and a palette and a and a, a contrast that felt 
very film-like to Todd. Um, so much so that they literally released that as like a te teaser trailer, our makeup hair right. test. Yeah, it was like that's what they released to show the look of Joker to like the fans and get it out there. So I still love that makeup hair test. It's like it might be the best work I've ever done. <laughs> well, you mentioned the uh, the close-ups in the movie. I feel like the movie has a very I can't even put my finger on it. There's just something about the effect the close-ups in this movie have on you as an audience member emotionally that's just really, really unique. I mean, the way that it sort of draws you into this guy's world. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what shooting large format gave you in terms of the close-ups and just in general what your philosophy was about how you were going to shoot those close-ups and what you were trying to, to convey, what kind of emotional effect you were trying to have on the audience. Yeah, I think, I think the main thing was, to some extent, you know, in a larger thing, it was about extremes, right? It was either we were going to go really wide if we could, or we were going to go intensely close. And obviously the close-up, by its nature, and particularly with, with the larger format camera, the benefit of the larger format camera was ultimately that if we were going to get close to Joaquin, and let's say we're in the ECU world, or just a traditional close-up world, and we were shooting, let's say, traditional spherical, normal sensor size, or 35 millimeter, that might be, let's say, an 85 or a 135, five or six feet away. But now we could suddenly be, let's say, on a 58 mil lens, much physically closer to Joaquin, so that psychological proximity of the camera to the subject, I think, has a subconscious feeling to the audience. They truly get the feeling that there's only two or three feet of distance between the camera and the subject. So I think there's a psychological element to there, but instead of now being, let's say, on a 24 mil lens, you know, we're now on a 58 mil lens that has a relative field of view, so it has this shallower depth of field and feels is slightly more compressed, right? So it has like all the attributes of a more medium to, to larger lens, but with the field of view of a wider lens, so we can now see him within his environment and really get a sense of that depth of field, or the shallow depth of field, the lack thereof, which has just, I think, a really beautiful three-dimensional quality. So we're with the, the character, but we're not so compressed that we've now lost the world behind him. Um, so I just think it has a, it's, just that, it's that psychology of lens choices that matter, right? And I'm a huge proponent of whenever I'm breaking down a script, that's like the first thing I'm always thinking about, right? Which is like, where is the camera? Where is the camera and what psychological result does that have on the audience, right? So if in the beginning of the movie, we wanna find him surrounded by people, surrounded by things, and have physically distance between us and him, well, let's, because we're seeing how the world sees him, right? There's something about shooting on a longer lens that in a weird way sometimes feels even more real, right? You see a character from across the street through a lot of foreground on a long lens, it feels like, oh, that's a real thing happening. We're witnessing it from far away. So like that whole scene when he's with the, um, uh, the sign, intentionally longer lens. So that's like by its nature, it's like, okay, we're gonna be much longer lenses, we're gonna shoot him from farther away, not be so physically close to him, so that it feels like this is how the world sees him. He's just a man in the middle of a sea of people and he's sort of potentially invisible. People walk by him, they don't notice him, he's just doing his job and he's doing it well, he's actually doing it with a lot of gusto, but nobody gives a shit, right? And so like what better way to show that 
than to see the way the world sees him. And that carries on through the bus, the next scene, and you know, where he's surrounded by people and he's in the midst of all these people, but again, he's just like a guy who's awkwardly laughing in the sea of people that are not even paying attention to him. Um, and it's not until we get home with him in an environment where he's now alone and that first scene you know, with his mom, which is still more medium lens, but when he finally, we're, we're alone with him and he's writing in his journal, that's when suddenly we start to introduce the proximity getting much closer to him. Because those are the times in which just us in the audience. It's like here's where now suddenly we can be alone with Arthur or Joker and see him as he sees, as, as like his true self, his lonely self. Or later in the movie when he becomes Joker, his most flamboyant self, right? Well, the, you know, the movie, as you said, is character study. It's a great, among many other things, great showcase for this performance by Joaquin Phoenix. And I'm curious, you mentioned that shooting digitally gave you advantages in terms of the way the, the performances were shaped and all that. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about that. I mean, how, what kind of environment did you have to set up to facilitate Joaquin Phoenix's best work? And how did the way he worked affect how you had to place your camera, where you had to put your lights, all that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, it was, like I said, a large part of why we, one of the you know, real reasons why we chose digital was this idea that we were never going to be in a situation where technically I wanted that to be a, a weighing down force on the movie, right? So if suddenly it's like, you know, and we had the greatest, we had some of the greatest team I've ever worked with. I mean, Greg Irwin, who's my A focus puller, is the best I've seen. Uh, Jeff Haley is the best operator I've ever worked with. I had an amazing other crew, you know, Steve Ramsey and Tommy Prate and Key Grip and Gaffer, Gaffer and Key Grip in that order. Um, but nonetheless, even in spite of like all of that, I didn't want to get in a situation where suddenly they're like, I need to know where, where is Joaquin going to be? Where are we going to be with the camera? I need to get some marks. All these things that, of course, is part of filmmaking. But in this movie, I knew we would never do any marks. We would never do any rehearsals. It's just by talking to Todd through pre-production and the kind of immediacy and this sort of, it, it, the, the idea was we would never see what, Todd, what Joaquin was going to do until he did it, right? So it was always going to be first take, let's see what happens. And so under that auspice, it was like, okay, then let's put ourselves in a position in which, and the benefit, some of the benefits of digital, where you're just focus pulling off of a monitor, means you might have a buzz, but you're never going to stay soft for long because suddenly they're going to catch up, and in real time we can all sort of react. So I knew, to some extent, I never wanted the technique and the technical aspects to, to interfere with Joaquin's performance ever. Right? I never wanted to be like, we got to do another one, or I just need a little help. Joaquin, where are you going to be? I didn't want to even ask that question. I didn't want him to think about it. And so that was a huge criteria. And then, and then it was like, okay, lighting. Now it was like, okay, not knowing also we didn't know what specifically he was going to do. How could I light the spaces and not the faces, right? So it was a big part of like with production design and Mark Friedberg, our production designer. It was always about where can we, and, and my gaffer, Steve Ramsey, it was always a question of where could we put the practicals, where could we put units, where could I hide units, in which either, right, and so in that environment, it's not necessarily that it was going to light his face, 
but maybe it was going to light the environment that would present itself so I could still have something to silhouette him against. Or I knew that that light over there would provide a kick angle and be kind of an edge light that it would, it would still be pleasing. So I, it wasn't that I was trying to just light the space in like a 360 environment so he could go anywhere and say, it's not going to be a movie that is going to have engaging lighting because that's what I'm up against. No, it was, it was sort of the opposite. It was like, let me go even more bold with the minimalness of the way we were going to light in a way that uh, kind of no matter where he went, I could, and, and one of the benefits of operating B camera and having such a great operator on A camera is I could also drive the, the framing and drive the composition and even the blocking of the camera to, to Joaquin towards the good light, right? So I could like, and Todd's great about this, it was like I could basically set the scene up and position the cameras where the lighting would be good. So some of it was just the, the amount of uh, flexibility and leeway that Todd gives for me to set the camera and place the camera and decide where coverage is gonna be. That was a benefit and that comes from just working with Todd six times. Um, and, uh, and also just the fact that, that the movie wasn't about traditional coverage and, and those kind of things, so we could really find the, the most interesting way to cover the scene in as simple a way as possible. Mm -hmm. Well, the, I, the, you mentioning traditional coverage leads me to another question, which is how, in terms of planning, you know, you, you go through all this work in the script, planning, you know, where the camera's gonna be, what kind of lenses you're gonna use, all that kind of stuff. How close is what you shoot to the initial vision you have in mind or to your initial shot lists and how much is improvisation? How much does the, the visual style of the movie evolve as you're doing it? Um, probably 50-50. There's still many, many things that are like very specific to the plan, right? The plan is 100%, right? We go through the whole movie, we make a plan. And then some shots, very specifically, we get in there. And then other shots we find on the day. Um, and some are just scene by scene, right? Like the bathroom scene where he makes this metamorphosis and he, you know, it's like um, a butterfly coming out of a cocoon kind of thing. That was just written as a different scene, meaning it had different points of action in the, in the scene. He was going to run in, he was going to do other action. That changed in the morning of Todd and Joaquin decided just let's do a non-verbal version of this scene. So it was not going to really be about story. It was going to be more, um, you know, just experimental and, and ethereal in a way. And so we, you know, he had that piece of music that Hilda wrote and started playing it. And that was another example of just the power and the beauty of both Joaquin and having an operator like Jeff Haley is didn't tell Jeff what we were going to do. Joaquin didn't tell us what he was going to do. We just placed Jeff in the room and uh, handheld and just they worked together and Jeff reacted off of Joaquin and Joaquin's really good with the camera. So together they did this amazing, not only is Joaquin dancing, but Jeff is dancing around him in real time to create this metamorphosis. So that's just that. Obviously we didn't plan it that way. but. I certainly planned, and that was a stage, we, sh we built that little bathroom on stage to light it in a way that, that obviously we could go anywhere. So it was always intended to give us that 360 ability. So some of those things are just like that. Some shots, like obviously him walking up the stairs, that shot of him walking up the stairs, we shot in prep three times because 
one, you know, once I went there the first time on a scout, I went back at dusk, took stills, I took the angle that I knew that would be really cool, you know, and put even a PA there, I think, during prep. And so, to some extent, we were executing something we had already planned out, and um, little shots like that. But but um, but some things we're finding on the day, you know, and and that's why it's Todd and I don't really work so much off storyboards, but I individually make a shot list for every scene, and often it will just be the most basic thing of like, let's say, when he walks into uh, in the beginning of the movie, he walks in, he checks his mail, right? So. That's conversation that's just happening during prep. We know there's a cage. That cage existed. It was part of the location. We knew that, like, we placed the fluorescent. We changed it to be the color that I wanted. Uh, we put a couple more practicals in that space. But the shot list might include, you know, a wide from the back of the space, frame within a frame through that other doorway, slow push in, right, as he walks in. Then the other one's sort of a slow push in underneath him as he checks the mail, insert on the mail. It may be as simple as that. Finding those specific frames, we just do on the day. We don't draw them out and figure it out. We just find it in the environment and find a frame that, that is, is uh, interesting. So it's a lot of that. There's always a plan, but maybe four shots from the plan come in, and then another five are made up on the day and, and sort of discovered. You mentioning the stair shot leads me to another question about logistical challenges, shooting on location in New York, just because... You know, I've seen the movie a couple of times, and the first time I was just absorbed in the, the movie, but the second time, every time you show those stairs, I just like had visions of like crew people and stuff having to go up and down those stairs carrying heavy equipment and everything. I mean, it was just... Those, I mean, the big day was the day when he's dancing at the end of the movie. Um, we shot those stairs twice at dusk, and we shot even that day of him dancing um, more midday, and then I sort of created... Uh, a sense of a backlit, sunsetty sort of look from a condor above that. But those, the, that day, guys had thirty thousand steps on their like Fitbit or whatever, like you know that thing. They were, it was ridiculous because even if like, basically we split the cameras, so we put one camera up top and did it in real time because we were let's say the dusk shot we were shooting at dusk. So there's a technocrane below. He sort of walks, he pauses, he looks up the stairs. And that's a that's B camera with me, and then up up at the top is Jeff on a long lens as he rises up the stairs. So that obviously Joaquin didn't have to do it that many times too, because it's like 180 stairs. Um, but that day, just if I and there were times where I had to just make a note and run up to Jeff to make a note. Yeah, you had to climb those stairs, and it was brutal. <laughs> it was really brutal. Those stairs were tough because there was no easy way to co go around, and even if you took a van, it would take too long. So you were constantly up and down those stairs. But the people that live in that neighborhood, they would do the exact same thing that Arthur would do. We witnessed them because we didn't close the stairs. It was still like people had to go up and down the stairs. We might you know, stop them for a take. But you would see them. They'd have grocery bags. They would start at the bottom of the stairs. They'd take a big, deep breath, just like Arthur did. And they would just start that climb. And then at the top of the stairs, you'd see them come up, and man, did they look exhausted. And you realize, yeah, this is, this is, they have to live this life every day, and, and, and it's hard, yeah. Well, that's one of the things the movie is kind of about, is like the weight of an apathetic city on this guy. And I, I was wondering what your, for lack of a better word, philosophy was about how you wanted to shoot Gotham. What did you want, how did you want the city to look? I think we, we were basing it a little bit off of any city that is... Um, 
it's like it's it's a city that is crumbling or it's on the edge of crumbling right it's like it's 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 a city that a lot of its residents are in great pain and loneliness you know like even the woman at the beginning who says would you stop bothering my kid it's all it's she's not reacting it's just it's there's a sense that everyone on that bus is just trying to get through their day and that there's a pain and a loneliness and these citizens are sort of living their own life sort of boxed in trying to create as little conflict as they could throughout the day and 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 I think it's a very hard city and I think one of the things we tried to do with Gotham whether it's like with the opening scene of him getting smashed by the sign or that bus scene or the early things to kind of establish what Gotham feels like or when he's getting fired anytime we have the chance to show Gotham at large um, I think it's just it's a hard city it's a city that's um, that there are a lot of people in pain and then there's another subset in which those things literally clash with each other, right? And the best example of that would be like the charity event at Wayne Hall is this protest is happening outside of all these people that are feeling displaced and pained and all these things protesting. And inside it's, it's you know, it's, it's as tranquil as it could be, right? A bunch of people in tuxedos and they have zero idea or care about what's happening right outside the doors, right? They're watching Modern Times and not a care in the world, right? So it's that juxtaposition of rich and poor that I think was a big part of this version of Gotham. Um, yeah, and it's obviously, in the most basic sense, it's literally during a garbage strike in which there's like, the, the movie takes place during a garbage strike, so there's literally garbage everywhere we go. So we would have trucks of garbage that we would place in scenes, uh, and there are, literally the rats are so bad they've become super rats. So. It's, a, it's not a city that is uh, the thriving, or, or certainly its citizens aren't, aren't thriving. And it's ready, potentially it's, a, it's in the perfect place for somebody to send the city into chaos, which is where it ends up. And then you've also got this, uh, another great environment in the movie is the TV studio where Robert De Niro, Murray Franklin's show is set, and that's a really fun you know, recreation of kind of yeah. like Johnny Carson type shows from the 70s and uh, talk a little bit about uh, what your approach was there and what kind of things you were you were looking at what you were trying to replicate yeah the the murray franklin set was one of the more fun sets to do because that's a perfect example of where the research the research was was the job because that was one straight from the start outside of, of with production design and wardrobe really figuring out the color palette um, to me, I was trying to just be as authentic as possible to one of those shows back in the day. And so I would just, I mean, that's where YouTube and other resources are so great. Look at what Johnny Carson was like in the day and what was, I mean, we even looked at like Letterman, but his show was so unique when he took over that it sort of bucked the trend of a lot of those shows. But looked at Merv Griffin and looked at uh, a bunch, Donahue even. There were a bunch of things that I would just look at Certainly for something like Johnny, which is really more of the template for, uh, for Murray Franklin, and, and trying to literally, I would show my operators, what was the frame that would be the single? What was the frame that would be the single on Johnny? What was the watch out? Where? And we even you know, interviewed um, with a couple like lighting directors, and we had this great TV director who does Saturday Night Live named Don King. And Don was invaluable because I could just ask Don, 
okay, when you would shoot these shows, physically, what was the distance, subject distance between the cameras and the, because it's not just about replicating the frame, it's also a down to like, okay, you have four cameras, where are they placed, how do they make the move from like the monologue space and when do they make the move? And so that was really fun, just trying to figure out the camera placements, their proximity to the, to the subjects, and then build all this lighting in, and as, as trying to be as authentic to like as if, I mean, we effectively just completely built a studio from the ground up that we, we even laughed, like we should actually just shoot, have De Niro like create a bunch of like shows right. and then you could just put it on YouTube or something. You know, just like, like we did with like, I don't even think people noticed it, but it's Justin Thoreau is like right. the actor uh-huh. who's, uh, who's like uh, uh, Ethan Chase, yeah. who's like he's mimicking. <laughs> Uh, but like just have some of that and then do these fake shows because we could have shot a show there, you know. Cost effective wise, we should have shot a show because we, you know, me and, and Steve Ramsey, my gaffer, we're like, we're not going to use any LEDs. We're not going to, it's only going to be old tungsten units. It's only going to be things that existed in the time. Not just because it was authentic and it would, and it would photograph properly, but also because we were, shooting it, and we were shooting it from the back, and you would see that, it not, not like the show, we also had show angles, of course, but we were also seeing beyond those, those frames to see the units in the sky, and, and, the, and so, you know, I think we shot that for about four or five days in total, because we also had a bunch of other things that got uh, cut, but I think one of the, you know, the other complications of that and the things that were challenges that, were, that we had to figure out is, the actual cameras that are being photographed are also shooting every single time. So we took Alexa minis and housed them inside of those cameras and then created basically fake art-directed lenses to be on the front. Each one of those camera operators were local 600 camera operators, but they also were extras. So every single time we were shooting with our other three cameras, uh, and shooting objective, co- you know, uh, subjective coverage, the the um, those cameras were always rolling, and so we were always. And then Don King, this this uh, this this great TV director, was sitting in the back of the stage doing a line cut, a live cut, just like he does on Saturday Night Live, with those four cameras, so that every TV that was on the set, whether it's the audience's TVs or the six TVs that were on monitor stands. We're constantly showing the live cuts, so the line cuts. So if we saw them in the background, they were like actually cutting from close up, as if we were shooting the show. So there were a lot of elements going into just every little basic shot in that scene. Um, wow, that's really cool. So the well, I guess before I, I ask this question, I ask you. Know, we've talked a lot about these different environments, and there, you know, and there are even more that we haven't talked about, like the Arkham Hospital and things like that. I mean, were there any favorite Scenes or locations for you that we haven't uh, covered here that you want to talk about? Um, I mean, I always, to some extent, it's the challenges that you sort of remember more than anything. Um, the scene in which he kills, and I don't know, it's a spoiler, but the scene in which he kills the three Wall Street guys, okay, it's a subway car, it has to be moving. And we went through a bunch of different machinations of that. First of all, you can't put any graffiti on subways anymore. They don't want to, to even remind people of those days in the 70s and 80s when graffiti was like peppering every single subway car. 
So the options there, and we did both ways, is you can shoot live, and then you add the graffiti later, digitally, um, and then you, like we shot when they're chasing him through the subway cars and the Detective Burt and Garrity, Burke and Garrity are chasing him through that. That was all in a live subway, and we were going back and up and down on a track that was closed, and, and it was great, and it provided some elements, but it didn't provide us enough control to do that scene uh, where he actually uh, has an interaction with those three subway guys. So that was one of those examples of just a scene in which we kept going through different... That was an example of like a, a scene that we kept going through different versions of how are we going to successfully accomplish the scene. And the solution we came up with, you know, which seemed like the only way, frankly, was to go to some LED technology because the idea of putting green screen out there meant not only did we also have to eventually put a background in there, but because a big part of that scene creatively, you know, Todd always would say, I wish it was like a, if it should feel like a fever dream, which is, yes, they're riding on a subway car and it should feel real, but it's also hyper real in that it's, it's, it's a fever dream. It's like it builds to this thing that is suddenly explodes into violence. And I, I obviously haven't grown up in New Jersey, but also now living in LA for the last 25 years, every time I go back to New York and I ride the subways, I always look for just the interesting play of light on a subway car. And so when you, it, when it disconnects from the, the power for a second and the inside goes black and how the outside lit up from like the tunnel lights would then illuminate the people inside, I was like, this is what we need. We need to have this full control so that we can, you know, go into black in the inside and silhouette them against the outside lights and create this kind of fever dream thing that Todd was describing. And so then the next solution was, okay, how do we do it? And so we went to the LED technology of putting 15-foot screens spread out across 70 feet on either side of the train with a small curve. We went through the process of just the expense of it. In fact, even on a movie this size, they were like, we can't afford this. So we ended up, Todd and I ended up cutting a day of shooting to pay for it. Um, and then it was like, okay, how do we create the element that's outside of this train? Because now with Homeland Security, they don't want you to actually photograph the inside of subway tunnels in New York City. I guess they feel like you're creating, I guess this is how they've explained it, but basically you're creating a, a you, you can study what you've shot and then figure out, I guess, I don't know, terrorist points. It's really terrifying to think about, but. But so they're like, we can't even shoot plates. So then the solution is, okay, what do we put outside those windows? We have to actually see, not only do we have to see things going by, but they actually pull into a station, people get off, they pull out of a station. So me and the, uh, and the, the uh, visual effects supervisor, Edwin Rivera, we just spent a night driving around subways, taking iPhone and DSLR videos and studying what we want outside those windows. And we thought, could we, shoot it with like a DSLR and shoot plates. And what we ended up coming up with was, let's just do it as stills, right? Because effectively movies are just 24 still frames a second, right? And so we took a little, we just got a really nice old station that looked the part, didn't look modern. And we walked like one step at a time and took, I don't know how, 150 stills or something and then created like a, t a long timeline of it, like the biggest panorama you could imagine. And then we just basically created a mock-up of what the train would look like 
and then put it out the windows and figured if we could run it as if you were putting on these LED things, this sort of strip of timeline, then it would look like a, like a station going by. Or would, and so we basically did that and we created like six layers. One was a light of fluorescence. One were like hanging tungsten lights. One was another set of lights. One was like a, a cyan station that they could go by. The other one was a sodium vapor station. And this was all timelines within these LED media. And then thankfully we were shooting at single camera. To some extent, I almost forced us to shoot a single camera because not only could Jeff do it even better, but because I wanted to be sitting on the board and so I would sit with a monitor and just watch Jeff operate and I would just like fire, fire buttons so I could turn off all the lights inside and then run like a really bright light outside the window. And then I could fire us past some warm lights and then I could, and literally that timeline became like a slow, it, we had to figure out how to animate it so it could pull up to a station, people could get out and then it would slowly ramp up like it was taking away. And it was like a remarkable like, solution that we had to come up with to, uh, to create like basically media for this thing. Um, and thankfully again, because we were shooting digital, we could test it. So the day before we shot it, we finally tested it and then we went, oh Jesus, there's not enough motion blur and it's becoming really steppy. And so we had to sort of fix that overnight really quickly. And uh, so it was one of those things that I, I think about that scene a lot because it was one of the biggest hassles on the movie, but I'm super proud with the way it turned out because I've talked to some people and they don't even, they think, they assume we shot it real. Yeah, I, I would yeah, yeah. completely, yeah. Yeah, and, and we couldn't have, even if we could shoot it real, we would never have that ability to do that fever dream thing of like being able to turn off all the lights and have really bright, bright light coming in from outside and all the, the ability that, that shooting it the way we did gave us, so. Um, where did you do the uh, post work for the movie, Color Grade, and how much uh, did you do in post to you know, continue working on the, the footage. I, I did the color grade at Company Three with Jill Bogdanovich as our final colorist. Dailies were Dustin Wadsworth at uh, Company Three in New York. The biggest part of the color grade that really played in was in the testing. I think by the time we did the makeup hair test and we really dialed in what that LUT was going to be, that was the biggest part of the color grading to some extent, right? Which was that LUT, and it was the only LUT we used on the movie. I could light to that LUT and we made a real point of just any color we really had in the movie, color contrast wise, uncorrected fluorescence, sodium vapor coming through windows, those kind of things, all were done in camera. I didn't do a lot of coloring on set. The main thing I would do if I, if I played with anything was I would play with the color temperature of the, of the camera, which I kind of like because it can just make small ways to just add a little bit of a cooler palette or a warmer palette. Um, and that's also one of the nice things about digital is I could just see it, Todd could see it, and we could dial it in, and then we don't touch it really for the rest of the scene. And then I would often go in to the to Company 3 in New York either first thing in the morning before call or as right when they got the dailies prepared at night, like at midnight, I'd go to sleep, he'd text me, I'd wake up, I'd go downtown, I'd spend 20 minutes dialing in little changes to the dailies. And then because Todd, uh, gets so accustomed to whatever that look is over the course of editing it for eight, nine months. I know by now, having worked with him and other directors, that look's not gonna change much between that. So the final look is very close to what the dailies were. And then the biggest thing that Jill and I do is we then finesse it and just do, do that last 10%, which not unlike building a house, that last 10% is massive, 
in that it's all the subtleties, but that's usually what, what we're doing in the, in the final DI process is like finessing it, smoothing it out, making some adjustments to sort of blend things together. But the dailies look very much like the final movie, that's for sure. Uh, I guess I want to wrap up by asking about what your reaction was to the finished film when you first saw it edited together, because it's a movie that obviously has, you know, it's won the grand prize at Venice. It's a big hit. There are some people who hate it. There are people who feel conflicted over it. It's, it's sort of got the, this whole wide gamut of reactions. And I'm curious for you, I know it's hard to be objective exactly, but what was your feeling the first time you saw it cut together? Well, I saw it two different times. Like, I mean, I saw it a couple times early on, and then I saw it in a sort of a big gap between the final time. And the first time I saw it was very early in the process. It was probably one of the earliest cuts Todd had. Um, and it was, it, was, it was quite good, but I could see things. And so I, I was like, you know, it was a great part of the process. Todd's really generous about that. And so I was able to sit down with the movie for about a week and go through and give a bunch of notes. So that was like the first step. So I understood how things put, came together. But it wasn't really a viewing because it was still so early. Then, thankfully, I like went away for a while. Todd, who's beyond being such a great director, is really an amazing editor and is great at shaping the material in a really lovely way. And then the next time I saw it, outside of like some pre-grading, which I was doing for a while, but I wasn't seeing it sort of like in its whole, uh, was with about four or 500 people where Warner showed it to like their entire um, uh, global marketing arm, all the distributors across the world. And uh, I was blown away. Like I remember turning to my wife, I don't know, 30 minutes in, because she was sort of, like most people when they watch it are, don't actually move. I've seen people lean in. I, I remember seeing somebody at the premiere lean in and then they didn't move for the next, like literally till it was over. And I think she was the same way and I couldn't tell because the audience is often quite still during the movie. I was like, is this, is this working for you? And she goes, this is amazing. And I was like, okay, good, because I felt that way. And then the, for me, the best thing about the movie and what Todd did with the movie is he built this, this slow build throughout the movie and that final 20 minutes at least leading into like when he's standing on top of a cop car has so much power to me that to me I was just an audience member sitting in the theater and it just blew me away I mean I genuinely and it wasn't like I know that people some people don't like the movie and I'm genuinely really harsh on you know my own work and it's I can separate myself but often I you know I'm just not I, I just literally just said to Todd, I think it's a masterpiece. Because it had such an emotional effect on me, and obviously I know every moving part within it. And so the fact that it could still work in the most basic way as an audience member for me and, and really draw me in and have such power, uh, it, was, it, was, it was as thrilling an experience as I had watching one of my movies ever, probably. Thanks for listening. This has been Jim Hempel and Lawrence Schur talking about Joker. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. For your complete cinematography resource, visit ASCMag.com and subscribe to American Cinematographer Magazine.